So the reading is from Revelation chapter 3, starting at uh, verse 14, which is on page 1,236 of the Pew Bibles. To the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Now let me pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would speak to us through the words that Christ spoke and were recorded by the Apostle John. Amen. Right, so over the last couple of months on uh, most Sunday evenings, um, we've been together looking at basic Christianity. And we've looked at who Christ is, his claims, and they were absolutely astonishing, that his claim to be, in human form, the very God of the Old Testament that they'd worshipped. His character, Dostoevsky, thought it was faultless, Napoleon thought he was utterly unique. There was no man like this man Napoleon Bonaparte recognised. I think he only recognised it when he was sitting on St Helena with nothing much else to do except reflect upon his life, mind you. And then there is Jesus' resurrection. 550 different people over a six-week period on at least a dozen occasions witnessed the risen Christ. And we've cited former Lord Chief Justices of England, professors of advanced legal studies, and currently renowned academics from at least the top five universities in the world who, on the balance of the probability of the evidence, which is the standard for both studying for historians and criminal courts, that Jesus, unique as it was, was raised from the dead, was transformed and then ascended to heaven. If you expected God to turn up on earth, you would expect him to do something rather out of the ordinary, something outstanding. 
And then we took a look at ourselves, our human nature. And in particular, Jesus' analysis of our human nature. And we saw how we may have an awareness of God's existence and an intuitive sense of right and wrong, but essentially we do our own thing. That is the default. God we keep at a distance. We don't like being reminded of him. And we suppress our consciences when we get that little niggle that we might be up to something that is wrong. The word for that is rebellion. And the word the Bible uses for that rebellion against God is sin in the singular. And the things that we do wrong as a consequence are called sins in the plural. The singular is the way it affects our relationship with God that uh, it is not a relationship where we submit to his authority. It's one where we do our own thing. And then all the other things are a consequence. So sin and sins have consequences as we uh, live our lives adrift from God and things go wrong in our lives. We either cause the problems ourselves or because uh, human nature is... uh, universal, others cause it for us. So we're not living and benefiting from life as God intended because we've declared our independence from God and done our own thing. As Psalm 14 verse 1 says, the way of the fool is right in his own eyes but it is the way that leads to destruction. Although we mess up, That is the least of the consequences. The ultimate is the eternal consequence. If we choose life in this world to exclude God, the frightening reality is that he won't override our choices. He grants us our requests and he leaves us alone for all eternity. If we don't recognise his authority now, if we reject the chance of life with him now, then he says, I'll give you what you want. I'll leave you alone. And that is his judgement on us. And then we looked at what Christ has done. As a just judge of the universe, uh, he has to punish those who rebel against his rule and who cause suffering to other human beings, other creatures of his. So he's just. It's part of his character. But then so too is being merciful part of his character. And he has worked out a way in which the demands of his justice on the one hand uh, and the desire to effect mercy on us who are rebellious He's worked out a way in which those two aspects of his character can be resolved. And they're actually resolved within himself. That's why God's the Holy Trinity. Because he himself, in the person of Jesus, came to live a life on earth as a human being, but he did it perfectly. And he suffered the punishment that we deserved. Jesus, the Son of God, on the cross was excluded 
from the presence of God the Father. And in that period of suffering on the cross, he literally went to hell, which is why he shouts, my God, why have you abandoned me? And the sky went black, all symbolizing that he was suffering, exclusion, estrangement instead of us. And so having resolved his problem, how he's able to uphold justice to all of us who cry out to him for justice if we've been on the wrong side of evil. He's worked it out. He's in a position to offer us a fantastic offer, the offer of salvation, the forgiveness of our sins, of eternal life with him that begins now and goes on forever. It's difficult to see how anyone who understands the reality of their situation won't come to Christ. But we do often come kicking and screaming. We don't reluctantly give in. Now whether we're adrift from God and we've messed up big time, or whether in fact we have um, a pile of money and we can anaesthetise ourselves from having to think about these things. We can cocoon ourselves in dosh. Either way, the prospect is an eternity without God. If we don't think it out clearly and come to the decision and accept his offer. Two weeks ago, we were counting that cost. What are the things, some of the things that, might, that you might have to weigh up if you were considering to let Christ enter your life? Well, here we move this evening from what may have been then some intellectual questions, is it true, to volitional ones, am I going to surrender to the truth? Now, you might be in your teens, and although you might find it difficult to believe that sometime in the last century, I was also in my teens. And um, you will probably if you were like me then, be very conscious of what your friends would think, your peers, if you seemingly went religious. That is definitely not cool. You probably need some pretty other things which are cool in your life to compensate so you don't come in for too much of a hard time and a kind of downgrading in their esteem. But you have to ask yourself, as I did, who is it more important to be in with? God or your mates? Jesus or your friends? I think I came to the conclusion that I could cope with my friends breathing down my neck, but I couldn't cope with God making me feel very uncomfortable and I needed to find peace with him. And ask yourself, who's going to be your friend throughout the whole of your life? Now, we may now have websites like Friends Reunited, but very few friendships from school days actually turn out to be lifelong. Sure, as I do about once a decade, I get a phone call or an email out the blue from somebody I was at school with, and we meet up and we catch up, and that's about it, really. Another testing time is when you're in your 20s and the possibility of a life partner comes into the reckoning. 
The guy who lived next door to me in my first year at university was an American called John. He'd already got a law degree from Harvard and he was in Oxford studying PPE, politics, philosophy and economics. And we introduced him to Jesus Christ. He was a thinker and he became intellectually convinced. He'd worked through all the challenges that there were. But there was a remaining question for him. What if Jesus wanted him to be single when he dearly wanted to get married and one day have children? Well, the answer was and is that you'll be better off in life doing what God wants you to do than doing what he doesn't want you to do. And John bought that and gave his life to Christ. He surrendered his personal autonomy and recognised the authority of Jesus. It may be that you're starting out in the big wide world of work and inevitably there will be ethical challenges. Conscience is not infallible. It has to be educated by the word of God. You might have an oversensitive conscience and you think that something is wrong when in fact it's quite okay. But it's much more likely that you have a desensitised conscience and it's one where you do something but so used to doing it that you don't recognise it's wrong. But when your conscience is educated by the word of God, you should never act against your conscience. What about the hard times? Do you jack in God when things go wrong? Well, the reality, and it might sound hard, is that this world is a fallen world. Adverse stuff happens. We are not immune to it. The question we have to ask is where is God in it? Well, he's with you if you enlist his help, which is a much wiser course of action than getting angry with him and dry, you driving him further away when you need him to empathise and help you. Or you might really want a comfortable life, to have a certain kind of job, to have a certain kind, or to live in a certain kind of area, to drive a certain kind of car, or to socialise and holiday with, you know, your peers. But such a dream, often when it becomes reality, you discover it doesn't really deliver all that you thought it would. And you still have that emptiness, you still have that disappointment. Whereas Jesus promises to supply all our needs, which aren't quite the same as wants, but all our needs. So we come to making a decision. Give our life to Christ, or hang on to it and retain our stoic independence. Well, you go through your checklist about all this. Is it true? What are the alternatives? Eternity with him or eternity without him? And what are the costs? It is a free gift. You can't earn God's favour. I mean, you think about it, you know, one wrong thought a day, one wrong word a day, one wrong action a day, three a day, that's 21 a week, that's nearly that's a thousand a year. 
If you're my age, I've clocked up 62,000 already. You know? I don't think you'll fare much better either. So that's a hopeless way of trying to get into God's good books. We have to receive it as a gift. And then finally, you come face to face with Jesus Christ. Or rather, he faces you with an invitation. And we look at that famous verse in Revelation 3.20. Yes, it was actually said to a church, and uh, that church, one presumes, was filled with a mixture of people. Some were genuine believers who had, but most of them, because they were lukewarm. In fact, that part of uh, Laodicea had particularly lukewarm water due to the rock formation and all the other sort of geology underneath and it was particularly insipid, like the kind of sort of water you'd get if you went to the bath pump rooms, if you're still allowed to drink it. I wouldn't, it's disgusting. Um, but that's the place. And he's saying it to people who professed faith, but he knows that many of them haven't genuinely encountered him and allow him to enter their life. He says, here I am. I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. In their culture of the first century, as in the Middle East today, to eat with someone is a high-level kind of expression of intimacy, a valued personal relationship. And the letter that was to the Laodicean church was one of seven letters written... Um, by the Apostle John on behalf of the risen Christ. And, um, and the one to um, the, uh, the Laodiceans was the last one. And it had a special emphasis on being wholehearted. And the letters had a format. And they came towards the end of the letter, there came a command or a call to act. They're all written with that kind of um, formula. And those churches were in the western part of Turkey. And what had happened, as far as uh, Laodicea was concerned, that Christian missionaries had gone to Colossae, and uh, they'd established a church there, and they were teaching, and people would come down the Lycos Valley um, to do business from places like Hierapolis and Laodicea, and they encountered Christians who gossiped the faith to them and explained it. And they embraced Jesus Christ and they took that faith back up the valley to those places and they formed churches there. That's how Laodicea came into existence. Now in the uh, middle of the 19th century, there was a kind of um, uh, artistic school called Pre-Raphaelites. I don't know anything about who the Raphaelites are, but the pre-Raphaelites, one of which is Holman Hunt. And he painted this picture called The Light of the World, uh, in which he's using this imagery from Revelation 3.20. In fact, he painted it three times. The original copy you would find in the chapel of Keble College, Oxford. If you've ever been to the hospital in Winchester and you look at the old building, what they call the Butterfield building, because that's the name of the architect, 
you'll think, gosh, that looks like Keble College, Oxford. That's because it has the same architect. The whole brickwork gives it away. But in Keble College, the, uh, the original, the one he painted in 1853, that's only about three foot high. In contrast to the copy he painted about 40 or so years later, which is in St. Paul's Cathedral and is likewise in a little side chapel, and it's probably more like about nine feet high. That was because um, he painted it so it could be taken round the world and used as an illustration, rather like I'm using this evening. Now, Holman Hunt didn't just paint the one picture. In fact, around that period in the 1850s, he particularly painted a number of others, which are really, in, in a way, a summary of the Christian faith. So he paints this one of sheep on uh, probably the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, because that's a lot steeper. And these sheep remind us of that verse in Isaiah, all we, like sheep, have gone astray, and they are facing a precipice. There's another one called the shadow of death, where you have Jesus in a carpenter's shop, and uh, that's where he, he grew up, he learned his trade with his father, and this is something of a premonition. There's Mary, his mother, in the foreground, and she, she's clopped it. She can see. So you, he, Jesus is holding up to get something from a higher shelf. And as he does that, the sun shines through, and it looks like on the, the tool rack behind him that you have this crucified figure. And Mary, who knows what she was told at his birth, realizes that this will soon happen to him. Holman Hunt actually went to the Holy Land in the mid-50s to uh, do some research and travel. And while he was there, this is doubtless out in the Judean desert towards the Dead Sea, he painted this picture called the scapegoat. Now, in Old Testament times, as part of their sacrificial system, which didn't work, but which was illustrative of what Christ would come to effectively do, uh, one part of it has two goats. There is the goat that is sacrificed. It is uh, by the high priest. That is, uh, its life is given for the life of the sinner. But the other goat, the high priest gets hold of that and he lays his hands on it and he transfers the sins of the people onto the goat and then it is let loose into the Judean desert. So it takes away our sins. The life of one is substituted for the other, so God's justice is satisfied, and our sins are effectively removed from us. So, back to Jesus, the light of the world. If you look at that carefully, you'll see that this Jesus, the risen Jesus, has a crown of thorns on his head. In other words, they are the victor's crown. He has done what, he's, what he came to do. He has achieved what he set out to do. It is a victor's crown. And then there is what looks like a halo behind it, but it is in fact the setting sun, symbolizing his glory and his divinity along with the robes. 
But notice, the day is coming to an end. The sun is setting, time is short. And he carries with him a lantern. The lantern is to expose the moral and spiritual darkness in the world, and it is to enlighten human ignorance. He knocks on the door. It's a door with many creepers around it, like ivory, kind of tendrils, actually probably even getting into the kind of uh, the gaps between the door and its frame. This door has never been opened. And notice there is no door handle on Christ's side. The only door handle is on the other side, where the person can hear Christ knocking and can hear Christ speaking to their life. And they are faced with a choice. Are they going to try and cover their ears? Or are they going to open the door? They can't see him, but they can hear him. They can hear him knocking on their conscience. And maybe, like this woman, in another of Holman Hunt's paintings called The Awakening Conscience, that she has seen this Jesus of Revelation 3.20. She knows he's knocking at her conscience. And whatever she's been up to in what is hinted at as a, some kind of illicit affair, she gets up, she walks away from it. She leaves her past life and moves to open the door to let Jesus Christ in. Well, this might be where you happen to be at this very moment. You know Jesus Christ is there. You know he's for real. You know he's been knocking at the door of your life. You are unsettled by it. Your conscience is disturbed. There is a vacuum. You know you have to do something about it. And you know what that is. And you know what happens when you open the door. He does come in. He did it for me, actually, in August 1966 on a crusader, now Urban Saints, camp on the Isle of Wight at a place called Westbrook. The Beatles, We All Live in a Yellow Submarine, was number one at that particular time. Tasteless music. And we had just won the World Cup. 4-2 against West Germany in extra time. I was 12. And I'd heard Jesus knocking at the door of my life a year before when I was on the same camp. But I was worried about what my friends would think if I went religious. And that concern led me to delay for a whole year. But we have to do what is right when we hear Christ calling us, we have to respond to that. And I've never regretted doing that in all my life. I knew at the time that if I was to commit my life to Christ, although I was only 12, I realized that means that I would have to commit myself to various things which I could not even imagine that were all to kind of come my way in the future.
And by knowing that, when such things arise, you know that you're pre-prepared to do, yeah, I'm a Christian, I must do the Christian thing. That is evidence of my genuineness. If I were to persistently and habitually not, that would be indicative of a rather shallow, superficial response that wasn't the real thing at all. Well, is that where you find yourself this evening? Well, if you know Christ is there, if you hear him knocking, if you hear the invitation, why not open the door? And how do you do that? Well, the words of this very simple prayer that you'll find on the back of the service sheet, uh, the, yeah, with this picture of uh, Holman's Hunt, the light of the world. I'd encourage you to fold it up and take it away with you. But you may want to pray that prayer in your heart as I, in a moment, pray it aloud. Let's pray. You may want to take it away and reflect on it, and that's a good thing to do. One should never rush something like this. But you may be somebody who's been through this a few times, in the sense of thinking about it and doing nothing but knowing it's true and knowing you ought to. And maybe now is the time that you should. And if you use these words and you mean them wholeheartedly, then Christ will come in. Lord Jesus Christ, I acknowledge that I have gone my own way. I've sinned in thought, word and deed. I'm sorry for my sins. I turn from them in repentance. I believe that you died for me, bearing my sins in your body on the cross. I thank you for your great love. Now I open the door. Come in, Lord Jesus. Come in as my saviour and cleanse me. Come in as my Lord and take control of me. And I will serve you as you give me strength all my life. Amen. Well, we take Christ at his word. If we prayed that prayer and meant it, Christ has come in. He's given his word when he says, I will come in, and he keeps his word. Amen. <laughs>